Welcome back to the Paranorm Girl podcast. I am your host, Kristen. Peter Burns' life uh, was incredibly exciting. He was the personification of carpe diem right up until the end. He would contribute to the Sasquatch field in many ways, such as with physical exertion, climbing snowy glaciers on the hunt for Yeti in the early days, or by obtaining necessary funding for big Sasquatch projects, or sharing his theories, findings, life experiences, and the like in his many books on the subject, starting with The Search for Bigfoot, Monster, Myth, or Man in 1975. He would be the longest living of the four horsemen of Sasquatchery and spend the longest length of time on the hunt for answers, having spent nearly six decades in one way or another on the case. Most people will only ever dream of having a life experience as dramatic and adventure-filled as Mr. Byrne had. He needs to be recognized and celebrated, I think. So today, we are going to attempt to touch on all of it. Peter Byrne was born in Dublin, Ireland, August 22, 1925. He grew up with a love for the outdoors and wildlife that was fostered in him from early in his childhood. As a child, his father also fostered in him a fascination with the abominable snowman via bedtime stories. This early introduction to the creature would turn into a lifelong interest in the unknown and the pursuit of it. In 1943, at 18 years old, he enlisted in the British Royal Air Force and would serve in its air-sea rescue division during World War II. Following training, he was stationed in India and during his service would take part in a top-secret operation and in numerous dramatic rescue missions of military members that had crashed their aircraft. And if you haven't taken the opportunity yet to check out Peter's website, he goes into detail about some of these rescue missions, and there's one in there that is so just dramatic. It's, uh, it's really, really interesting. It's like it's from a movie. By the end of his service in 1947, he had been awarded four campaign medals, been given honors, and had been promoted to leadership roles. So not very surprising based on all that he did, but... Uh, you know, off to a good start here. So Peter would actually conduct his very first expedition to look for Yeti in 1946, a whole year before he left the military. Busy guy. So he and a, a fellow airman decided to dig into the mystery just a little bit for themselves and set out to Darjeeling, where they would spend time talking with and asking the locals about it. From there, Peter would immediately head out for two weeks into the middle Himalaya to actually search for this creature that was inspiring the locals' tales and folklore. Like, can you, uh, can you imagine, like, think in your head, <laughs> visualize out the, just these snowy mountainous peaks, and you're like, yeah, I think I'll just head out for two weeks and look for <laughs> a monster. <laughs> Following the end of his military service, 
he would stay in India as a planter for a British tea company near Darjeeling, and during his time working there would end up participating in two more expeditions over the course of five years. On the last of these journeys, this one into the Sikkim Himalaya, he would run into his friend, a respected climber and 1953 conqueror of Mount Everest, Tenzing Norgay. And they got to talking. And according to Peter, Tenzing would at one point mention to him that earlier that summer, he had met another American whose group was planning their own Yeti expedition in Nepal. And this fella had left a note with Tenzing's wife. And would Peter like to see it? This other American would end up being the very Tom Slick of Bigfoot and Yeti financierdom. And his note contained his contact details. Now, once he had the deets, Peter would reach out to Slick and propose teaming up to do some winter excursions as the Yeti was more likely to come into view while foraging in those months. They were sure to find one and hopefully trap or perhaps shoot one if it came to it in order to get the body back to the States. The Nepalese government at the time demanded the expedition have official backing. It was last minute, but members of Slick's family who sat on the board of the Zoological Society in San Antonio would provide the necessary backing for the operation. They came through. So the expedition would arrive on March 14th of 57, ready to go. Four days before the Nepalese government then suddenly issued an edict forbidding all foreign mountaineers from killing, injuring, or capturing a Yeti, which can be more fully studied in the Yeti memo, which I will link below, and I have linked it on social before. That's It's an incredible document. I had no idea something like that existed. So this, uh, this kind of threw a, a curveball into Burns and Slick's plans, but they were undeterred. And in an expedition the following year, apparently were prepared to go against the government's declaration as they would bring along multiple Yeti traps. So, you know, just do what you want to do and ask for forgiveness later. That's usually how we made our films back when I worked for a production company. No, we didn't. What are we talking about? Peter would end up designing and leading from 57 to 59, three separate searches for the Yeti on behalf and under the backing of Slick. During that three-year span of time, footprints thought to belong to the Yeti would be discovered, possible droppings were discovered, some interesting theories about dietary habits of the creatures were formed, but something else took place that has been one of the most fascinating stories that I have come across since the start of this season. Early on in the search, Peter had heard stories of possible Yeti remains being kept in a monastery at Pengbosch. In 1958, Peter would first put eyes on what he was told was a mummified Yeti hand. <laughs> cool stuff. Uh, before we launch into that, though, support for the Paranorm Girl podcast is brought to you by Manscaped. Roses are red. 
violets are blue. Trim your balls, <laughs> and your date will end up thanking me too. What up, fellas? <laughs> Valentine's Day is knocking, and Manscaped is the remedy for what the love doctor ordered. His prescription? The all-new Performance Package 5.0 Ultra, but of course, designed to elevate your grooming game and shine like the heartthrob you are. Join the 10 million men worldwide who trust Manscaped with my exclusive offer. Go to manscaped.com and snag 20% off plus free shipping with code PNG. Roses and chocolate are fine. They're great. They are, they've become the mainstay for this romantic holiday. But maybe this is the year we add a little spice, you know, a little kick to our Valentine's Day plans. When the love doctor comes a-knockin', whip out your own little bag of remedies with the Performance Package 5.0 Ultra. Ensure you're ready for any plans that Valentine's night may bring. Get groovy in the trickiest of spots with the Lawnmower 5.0 Ultra with its skin-safe technology and their brightest LED spotlight yet, guarding your V-Day treasure against grooming mishaps is super easy, dudes. Super easy. Rid that nose of any unsightlies with your Weed Whacker 2.0 nose hair trimmer. And do not forget the final touch to setting the stage for a romantically smooth celebration. Manscaped's Crop Soother Ball Aftershave Lotion and Crop Preserver Anti-Chafing Ball Deodorant. From trim to aftercare, this kit will have you polished, feeling, and smelling good, and pre- and post-date ready. <laughs> Just here to help. That's what I'm here for. Get 20% off and free shipping with code PNG at manscaped.com. That is 20% off with free shipping at manscaped.com when you use code PNG. Because your grooming upgrade awaits, ready to charm your Valentine's dates. All right, back to this Yeti hand. So, the monks who cared for this artifact were said to have refused any removal of the bones for any kind of study. This item and the legend of how it was obtained was precious to these people and would have been a financial hardship if they let it go. So, totally understandable. Uh, Peter, after correspondence with the scientist in mind to study it, then asked the monks if they could just have a piece of it, just one little piece. The answer was no. Peter would leave empty-handed on that first attempt. Following the expedition at the end of 58, Peter flew back to London to meet up with the scientist, Osmond Hill, who relayed to Peter over lunch just how important this was to be able to study this thing under a microscope. According to Peter, after he said no, that it wasn't possible to get it, Osman then suggested he steal it and replace it with a human hand. Peter asked, unsurprisingly, where was he going to get one of those? And in the middle of the restaurant, 
staff running all around. Osman reached down and pulled up a brown paper bag with something inside of it. There's your human hand, he said, and set it on the table. So, a month later, Peter went back to the monastery, and using his renowned and never-ending charm, or at the very least, uh, some badass negotiating skills, struck a deal with them for a small exchange that also included a, a sizable amount of money to them, and, uh, and a replacement finger from his paper bag hand, of course. But Peter would leave the monastery having secured the thumb from the original hand. Now, this artifact uh, was not something that you could just waltz through uh, customs with. So Peter would smuggle it from Nepal into India, and on Tom Slick's instruction was to meet up with his friends, Mr. and Mrs. Stewart in Calcutta, to hand it off. Tom's friend was, in fact, famous actor Jimmy Stewart, who would accept the digit from Peter. They would hide it in his wife Gloria's lingerie case and attempt to smuggle it out of the country. They bypassed security. All was well. No red flags. So far, so good. Upon landing in London and retrieving their luggage, the Stewarts noticed they were short one item. Mrs. Stewart's lingerie case. Rot row. <laughs> oh no. <laughs> Three days after they arrived, the concierge from the Stewart's hotel phoned up to say there was a British customs officer waiting in the lobby to speak with them, and could he send them up? I mean, are they gonna say no? Of course not. Don't want to look suspicious of trying to sneak a literal finger out in a case of underwear or anything. <laughs> so, a moment later, they opened the door to a young man holding Mrs. Stewart's undie case. They invited him in. They had tea together. They chatted. And then it was time for the lad to leave. As Gloria signed a receipt for the case, she noticed it was still locked hadn't been opened. She asked why it hadn't been opened and examined by customs, like, shut up, Gloria. Luckily, the man responded, a British customs official would never open a lady's lingerie case. Whew, all right. So with the finger securely back in their possession, it would be delivered to its originally intended target, Osmond Hill of the Zoological Society of London for study. Upon examination, Hill would declare he thought it looked of human origin, though later would express doubts about that original assessment. Uh, other scientists in Slick Circle would disagree that it was of human origin. Decades later, some of the skin collected from the bone was analyzed by people working on behalf of the show Unsolved Mysteries, and they would arrive to no clear-cut conclusion as to the biological origin. 
And in 2011, DNA analysis was conducted by a genetic expert from the Royal Zoological Society of Scotland for a show on BBC's Radio 4 called Yeti Finger. They reported that it had been matched against the database and human DNA was found. At some point in all of this, the finger was said to have been lost for a time, you know, just disappeared, and then it resurfaced again. I do wonder uh, if that took place before the BBC conducted their analysis uh, and maybe what they looked at really was a human finger and not the original artifact. Conspiracy, conspiracy, I know. Uh, The final analysis, though, that I will mention before we move on, which does not provide any clarity, but just adds yet another interesting twist on this whole thing and calls the BBC analysis and results totally into question is this. A professor, Brian Sykes, who authored a book called The Nature of the Beast, which goes into DNA analysis used on various submitted hair samples, also did some DNA detective work on the Pengboche finger. What Sykes found was interesting. He found it was a European mitochondrial DNA sequence in the clan of Ursula. Ursula, in reference to this DNA mapping system that Sykes and his team put together and falls under numerous lines of European genealogy. So at the very least, uh, it definitely could not have been a finger of a monk as had been previously suggested with Sykes writing, the Pangbosh finger sequence was almost certainly not from Nepal or anywhere else close by. He then compared the finger's DNA to a cheek swab DNA he had collected, and guess what? It was an exact match to Peter Byrne. So, weird, right? Yeah. So I think it calls into question the BBC's conclusion, because is that the DNA they also tested? And for the same reason, you should never collect suspected Sasquatch hair samples or scat with your bare fingers. I mean, gross, ew, don't do that, but also don't do that. Um, if you should find yourself ever in the vicinity of a suspected Yeti bone, put your damn gloves on. <laughs> I don't know if that's what happened in this case, if, 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 if I'm even understanding this correctly. But, uh, you know, I mean, just saying. It, it, it's just good protocol. Period. By the end of 1959, Peter had been on the Tom Slick-funded search for Yeti for three years. Though some footprints, possible scat, and possible Yeti fingers were exciting and all, they didn't have an actual creature in hand, and it was time to close up shop. And there were bigger fish to fry back in the States. Slick had taken a liking to a creature similar to that of the Yeti, a little closer to home, something called a Sasquatch, located somewhere up in the forests of the Pacific Northwest, and he launched an expedition to find it. Though Slick had initially attempted to take the reins of leadership of the 59 Pacific Northwest 
expedition. He had numerous and other distracting obligations that continued to pull him away. Just lots of business to attend to. So in December of 1959, he would call upon his adventurer friend, who he knew was able to take charge of a situation and had already assisted him in a similar venture, Peter Byrne, to head up the expedition, which was really the best thought out and, and well-played decision that could have ever taken place. No, not really. John Green and Rene DeHinden despised the guy and deeply resented him being put in charge of the search. Now, Byrne had said that initially he was very skeptical of there being such a creature as was being described to him hiding somewhere out in America, a land of skyscrapers and buildings. But upon meeting with Slick, and going over the maps of the massively forested area that is the Pacific Northwest, and hearing Slick talk about recent print finds, sighting accounts by credible eyewitnesses, he was swayed quite a bit and noted that the area they were to look was many times the size of the area in which they had searched for the Yeti. Byrne would spend a couple of years on this expedition, finding numerous prints, but no creature, once again. And unfortunately, as we know from our last Horseman episode, things would come to a halt when Tom Slick perished in a plane crash in October of 1962. Once the expedition was shuttered, Peter returned to Nepal, and it would be many years before he returned full-on to what he called the Great Search. But from 62 up to the early 90s, he was still as active as ever. Back in Nepal, he would return to the jungles and pick up with his safari and big-game hunting business he had somehow had time to be doing before. By the winter of 68... He had uh, some change of heart about the hunting of the animals and the people he was leading out to do it, um, and he would end up forming the International Wildlife Conservation Society and also establish the Sukla Fanta Wildlife Reserve and National Park in Nepal. Very cool. In 1971, he would secure funding from the Boston Academy of Applied Sciences, funded by millionaire Robert Rines, and launch the Bigfoot Information Center and Exhibition. Over the course of this project, the center logged 94 credible sightings by 1976. At this time, Burns would send hair and tissue samples to the FBI who agreed to analyze it. This was a big story, and you've heard it, but the FBI did actually analyze it and responded to Byrne with the results. Now, that responding correspondence missed Peter Byrne entirely, and he wouldn't actually have the FBI's answer in hand until 40 years later, when the records containing their correspondence were released to the general public. It was deer hair. <laughs> he died in 
He also would write his book, The Search for Bigfoot, Monster, Myth, or Man, in 75. When he wasn't writing or getting money or setting up information centers, he was pioneering rivers that had never been descended before in Nepal and in China and opened one of the first whitewater river-running companies in Nepal under the name Peter Byrne Expeditions. He was an adventurer, an explorer. And in the 1980s, he was leading commercial safaris based on wildlife observation and photography only. In the early 90s, with more funding from Rhine's Academy of Applied Science and a new benefactor, David Ransberg, Burns became director of his newly formed Bigfoot Research Project in the Hood River, a project that would also last for five years. For this project, far better technologies for hunting Sasquatch were used, like remote sensors. They incorporated a helicopter into their search. They also had a hotline set up to receive accounts of sightings and information. 1-800-BIGFOOT. Don't call that, by the way. It's, it's, it goes to some poor family somewhere out there, so don't call it. Um, though no creature was found during this project, he and his team did discover several sets of huge footprints, along with gathering eyewitness reports, and also discovered a giant nine-foot-by-four-foot nest made up of laid-down moss that Peter was convinced was the bed of a Bigfoot. He would come out of the BRP convinced of the high probability that there was a small group of Sasquatch remaining in the Pacific Northwest, but that further research was definitely warranted. Following the end of the project, Peter was commissioned to investigate sightings of the Southern Sasquatch, a.k.a. the Skunk Ape, though he spoke many times to his doubt that there were any such creatures outside of the Pacific Northwest. And that, that wasn't just speculation that came from actually going to states outside of the Pacific Northwest, visiting sighting locations, speaking with witnesses, and ultimately finding nothing credible to support those claims. In uh, later years, he would continue the great search though on a much smaller scale, I think for him, it just got to a point of, I believe it exists just to prove it to myself or just to see one for myself would be more than enough. I think his aim would become uh, to document their existence in the form of DNA extraction from physical remains, but also with hopes of an encounter so as to document one via photographic means. As it says on his website, though, he knew that would never be enough for the scientific community to accept after a lifetime of searching. He knew his friends and fellow Bigfoot hunters would. Now, one not-so-awesome piece of Peter's life story here uh, should be talked about, though I, I don't personally think, in my opinion, I don't think it lessens his character, just his amazing story in general. Uh, 
John Green would disagree. And upon learning this about Peter was like, see, see, <laughs> I told you he was no good. Um, I, I can't remember exactly what he said, but Green had always felt uh, Peter was untrustworthy or just like not an honorable person. Something, something along those lines. Um, so here it is. In 2013, 88-year-old Peter Byrne was sentenced to three years of probation after he pleaded guilty to financial fraud. Between 92 and 2012, he had been concealing his travels out of the states and how much money he was making while receiving need-based benefits in the form of supplemental security income and food stamps to the tune of $78,000. When the Social Security Administration would ask about his whereabouts or to verify with his passport, he lied, said it had been destroyed. He withheld the amounts of money he had stashed away in the bank. The records note at one time was more than $85,000. He also lied about receiving royalties from the sales of his books, all to continue receiving this money. Just a mess. <laughs> it's, it's not great. Uh, so, yes, he was sentenced to probation and also uh, ordered to pay restitution, just pay everything back, which he did. Um, got his hand caught in the cookie jar, that one. <laughs> and uh, that may seem like a strange place to end the segment on Peter Byrne or to end this episode. And I agree. So we're, we're going to talk. Um, we're going to end this one talking about Peter's involvement with the PGF. But before we do, I just want to say, I think it, it's, it's kind of case in point, this, this circumstance. It's kind of case in point, the, uh, the, the life that he led, the crazy life he had, everything he did seemed to be all or nothing, you know, extreme, innovative, brave, stupid, out of the norm. And he always did what needed to be done, I think, in his mind. He was just, he was a vibrant character who led a vibrant life. And uh, in some ways, I don't think he quite gets the credit that he perhaps deserved for being one of the layers of foundation in this field. Despite these not-so-great actions that he took, uh, he had a whole rest of his lifetime of bringing the mystery of the Yeti and the Sasquatch to the public eye, giving it a fair shake, more than a fair shake, because he was excited by the prospect. Even if the financial windfall of being the first to discover it was a motivating factor, he also had a burning desire for the adventure of it. I don't know. May we all find something that lights our fire so much. All right. Let's talk about Peter's involvement with the Patterson-Gimlin film. The PGF is one of the most studied films of all time. It has been analyzed every which way with Measurements, speeds, heights, weights, course of travel, all discerned by early and current 
day researchers who continue to analyze and break it all down for the rest of us. New discoveries and theories have come of these folks' findings. And though I don't often come across Peter's name at length in regards to the PGF, uh, he had a hand in some of those findings and its enduring legacy and put in significant effort to examine it. John Green would map the site where the PGF was shot the year following the filming. Renee Hinden would do so in 71, and Peter Byrne would do his own mapping of it in 72. He had been contacted in 71 by one of Tom Slick's associates, who reached out to him and said, I hear there's this piece of film. Would you go on my behalf and talk to the guys who took it and see what's going on? And he would. He would return to the site a few times to investigate and would snap a photo of the location that would be used by Jeff Glickman of the North American Science Institute on his analysis of the film's subject in order to determine their dimensions, which interestingly yielded similar height as had been discerned previously, but arrived at differently by other researchers. Not too long before Patterson died in 72, he would tell Byrne, Peter, we should have shot that thing. Then people would have believed us. This references the no shooting pact he and Gimlin had uh, made prior to their sighting, but in the case of one, what a, what a different film that would be. What a different world this would be right now. Um, though at one point in his life, he may have held a different opinion on the matter, at some point, Peter himself would adopt a no-shooting stance when it came to Bigfoot. Uh, Peter was an advocate for the film's authenticity. He, without a doubt, thought it was real. And I gotta say, if the maker of that film said something like that directly to me, I would believe him. I would at the very least believe that he believed it was the real deal. Now, down the road, when the Bigfoot research project was still up and running, they would try their hand at getting down to the nitty-gritty of the film, and they would commission a group out of Illinois to do a study of it. Though their study, or at least the funding for the study, ended before they reached a conclusion, Peter said at a meeting of the Western Bigfoot Society in 97 that the study was moving towards authentication of the film. During this talk, he also mentioned a discovery he had made after watching the PGF hundreds of times and decades later, something he hadn't noticed before. And maybe you have caught it, or had a thought about it, that just before Patty does her famous look back, she pauses, hesitates. It's, it's less than a second of a hiccup of a moment, but this led him to speculate that being a real creature with the excitement of the moment, the, the two strange hairless creatures staring at her from across the way, it, just everything going on, he speculated she was trying to make up her mind what to do. She, of course, continues on and disappears and no one ever sees her again. <laughs> Probably a good call on her part. 
years back, he also was one of a handful of researchers who took a copy of the PGF to show film professionals to get their take. He went to Disney Studios and sat with the head of animation and watched the footage together multiple times. They told him it was really good, really well done. Who made it? Peter told them it was made out in the middle of the woods by two amateurs, and they wouldn't believe him, (laughs) basically saying there was no way it was too sophisticated. And obviously, there's no such creature anyway. Duh. All right. Following the closing of his last major project, Peter would still go on to appear in many documentaries. He gave talks, did interviews, wrote many more books. But as for Bigfoot, though the fire never died, he said it would become more so a hobby not something he did 100% of the time. He was still investigating, don't get me wrong. Uh, He followed up on sightings and footprints and with witnesses, but yes, he would gracefully kind of settle into the final chapter of this lifetime spent on the Great Search. He would pass away peacefully at 97 years old in Oregon, July of just last year. Really wish I could have met him. What a wild life. We will finish up with our remaining horseman, Dr. Grover Krantz, in another episode. There was just so much to cover with Peter, and it just kept coming and coming, even after I finished. Dudes, did y'all know Slicks and Burns Yeti expeditions were allegedly covers? for CIA spy operations? What? (laughs) There's a rabbit hole for somebody out there, if you're curious. If you enjoyed receiving this educational transmission today, if you heard anything you have never heard before, and it made you go, hmm, I've never heard that before, that's very interesting, please let me know by leaving a five-star rating or giving it a thumbs up and subscribing If you are watching on YouTube, don't forget to subscribe. Beer, Booze, and Boogeymen will be premiering Saturday, February 3rd at 5 p.m. Pacific. I got you a time, guys. You get the benefit when you tune in of enjoying me, the Paranorm Girl, Damien from Life Beyond Six Feet, and putting up with Gil of the Black Cat Report as we boogie our way through our first episode of this live-streamed bonanza right out the gate. We are talking about haunted workplaces. Dudes, do I have some stories to share with y'all. But yes, the three of us have joined forces. It's like getting three for the price of one. But there is no price because it's free, much like this show. It will be streaming many places, but for my good folks on YouTube, you can easily catch it right here. For my good folks on Facebook, the PGP page will also be streaming it there. There is also an option for you, the listener, to call in during the show. And I do mean call in, like on your phone and stuff, in order to share your story. I do so hope you consider it. 
But if you just want to watch and listen, hop onto either of those platforms that I just mentioned, bring your own paranormally themed drink, and come celebrate the creepy with us. I will see you guys there. Now, next week, I have a really, really special guest from the Bigfoot world joining me. Fair warning, there will be a lot of visual aspects to this upcoming episode, so please consider hopping onto YouTube to catch it. Well known for hiding Bigfoot in his work, artist Timothy Wayne Williams joins us on Tuesday. Looking forward to it, you guys. Until then, stay safe, keep the nightlight on, and sleep with one eye open.